Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody. I am uh, first going to say that I um, we did not get a uh, podcast up this week. Uh, we did do a uh, I did do a live stream of Critical Conversations on Friday, but my whole schedule and everything got, got totally out of whack this week because um, we had a little medical thing that came up on Friday, kind of threw everything out of whack. I had an interview lined up, et cetera, and uh, none of that stuff happened because um, we had to deal with that personal stuff. So, you know, what can you say? Sometimes schedules and plans, of best laid plans of mice and men, right? So um, so I had to skip the podcast this week because I really didn't have a topic to talk about that I thought would be of broad enough and general enough interest to everybody and, and the time to prep for it was not there. So um, so anyway, that didn't happen this week. So I apologize for that. But uh, I, we will be coming back hot and heavy. I actually have uh, two interviews lined up for next week. Uh, we have John Atat coming back and uh, this other person and some other exciting things lining up in the future. In fact, I'm now getting a little bit of help that is helping me to line some things up and that is already moving forward. So um, so this is new and different and exciting for me and I'm kind of, and I am excited about it. I am excited about uh, some of the possibilities of things rolling forward into the future here. I'm also about um, hopefully a week or two away just to keep you guys updated on what's going on with my master's degree. I am not officially completed with that program yet. I am waiting for final certification from the uh, sort of overseer board there at Salford University. So that is supposed to happen, I'm told. It had gotten delayed and delayed again, but I am told it's supposed to happen this next week. So cross your fingers that I will get an email saying that it is a done deal and, uh, and you will be seeing some uh, cosmetic and and uh, sort of uh, you know textual uh, framing changes on my YouTube channel is there, when that is because does become official because I get to add some letters after my name and maybe change some of the imaging and stuff that I'm doing. But the content on the channel is not going to radically change. But I am going to be you know as I have said for years, growing and growing and growing. And uh, and you guys are along for the ride. So I want to thank you for your support, your viewership, and for inviting me into your home. Every week, uh, so we do have some. Um, I picked some kind of tough, uh, interesting questions this week. So we will be. Uh, let's just go ahead and, yeah, let's just go ahead and get to it. <laughs> Kevin Zay, I was wondering if you could offer your insights as to why anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories are so interconnected. What did Jewish people ever do to deserve this? Also, do you think bringing up and talking about conspiracy theories can perpetuate their spread? All right, Kevin, thank you for this. First off, I want to say just right out of the gates here that uh, all, almost every conspiracy theory of a, of a kind of a major, whether it's flat earth, 9-11 truthers, you know, the whole 9-11 conspiracy that it was an inside job. Um, so many other Alex Jones world domination type conspiracy theories that we've seen over the years, these are dominated by anti-Semitic thinking. And anti-Semitism is not, it, it's kind of its own thing. And we're going to go into oh, some quotes and stuff that I looked up on this because it's kind of a difficult topic to wrap your wits around. It's not racism. It's not culturism. It's not, it's kind of its own thing because the Jewish people are kind of their own thing. And, you know, we're talking talking about a very small percentage of the population. We're talking about 2% of the American population uh, translates to 0.2% of the world population. There are really not that many Jewish people around. And they have been for centuries. They have been scapegoats for every kind of conspiratorial nonsense that people have dreamed up. And, and the reason... You know, when you ask me first, what did the Jewish people ever do to deserve this? Nothing. They really didn't do anything to deserve this any more than any other a culture or group of people that you can categorize either through skin color, language, culture, geographical location. You know, we can we can pre have prejudices and um, be awful to people for any number of reasons. You know, we can categorize people in all kinds of ways. And religion is a really big one. Culture is a real big one. You kind of combine those things together and you get Judaism and, Jew and the Jewish people. And 
Um, and so we, you know, sort of have this. And in fact, I believe it's sort of that sort of faux, how do we define these people, that is one of the factors as to why they are um, so easily made scapegoats, right, is because they can be anything. That group of people, Jews, can be anything to any other group of people that they want them to be. And you find through history radically conflicting, uh, even even contradictory claims made about the Jewish people and the shenanigans that they get up to in dominating the world, its finances and economies, and uh, Hollywood. There's all kinds of anti-Semitism surrounding Hollywood and the banking industry and finance and money and religion and, of course, the whole stupid, you know, blood libel nonsense and the, the alterations and confusions and contradictions that are just rife throughout all of these conspiracy theories are truly mind-numbing. I mean, you're really, when you start going down the list and looking at how long and how far and the, and the details of, of what people claim the Jews have been up to, you quickly find that it's, it, it is perhaps some of the most ill-conceived, illogical, irrational thinking that human beings have ever engaged in. And I'm talking about for centuries we have engaged in, we, the human species, have engaged in this kind of thinking. So it's so it's it's quite powerful stuff, right? And here's and the under and if you ask me at the end of the day, what's the underlying thing here? Well there's lots of underlying things. Really, it isn't. There is no one answer for why the Jews are, you know, hated r- routinely and roundly all around the world. Uh, there's lots of reasons, but if you really wanted to reduce it down, I think to the simplest, stupidest explanation, it's because they're the most convenient scapegoats. They are the easiest and most convenient to use, and they're such small numbers of people that they are easy to persecute and um, and abuse and uh, you know and control. So as we you know as we have seen throughout European history, all right, and long before World War II, by the way, World War II was the culmination of a of centuries of of hatred, right? That was just fomented and fomented and fomented by the by the churches, by the by individuals, by uh, various groups along the line. And I'm gonna actually, I, one of the reasons I took this up was to actually clear up my own bullshit on this topic because I, on this channel, have forwarded some nonsense about the Jews uh, that I thought was true, right? This is so embedded in our culture. And I'm gonna give you a couple of quotes here uh, that I pulled up on this that I thought might be clarifying or you know, illuminating as far as some of this bigotry goes. This is from an article in the Atlantic magazine, and this was after this was posted after there was um, an incident. I believe it was this year or year a couple of years ago. So he took the synagogue hostage with the disgustingly weird false idea that the Jews ran the world, and he would be able to get this rabbi in Texas to call the chief rabbi for America in New York and get her to get this person released from prison uh, because the Jews run everything, right? And so by taking these people hostage and getting the Jews involved and the Jewish network, this person would be able to get a murderer freed from jail, right? This was this person's honest assessment of the situation. They took a gun, they went into a synagogue, they held people hostage, and it was only because the rabbi actually had anti-terrorism training that he was able to fool this guy and get people out of there, and they ended up, um, you know, capturing and, and dealing with the situation. Um, I mean, it's so bad that rabbis around the United States have actually gone uh, dedicatedly to anti-terrorism training because, you know, synagogues are the target of so much hate and violence. Um, Okay, so in this Atlantic article, this uh, author wrote, unlike many other bigotries, anti-Semitism is not merely a social prejudice. It is a conspiracy theory about how the world operates. 
This addled outlook is what united the Texas gunman, a Muslim, with the 2018 shooter at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life synagogue, a white supremacist who sought to staunch the flow of Muslims into America. You see, you have a Muslim in one end and you have a white supremacist at the other. Nothing in common, but both of them common causes anti-Semitism. Uh, it's a worldview shared by Louis Farrakhan, the black hate preacher, and by the way, ally of Scientology. And yes, anti-Semitism does exist in Scientology, even though there are Jewish Scientologists. L. Ron Hubbard's conspiracy theories are incredibly um, similar to, let's say, even if they're not so obviously bathed in anti-Semitism like David Duke's teachings or Louis Farrakhan, where they call them out directly, Hubbard aligns with that worldview, and his conspiracy theories are very much in tune with David Duke's and Louis Farrakhan's. Um, and David Duke, for example, right, the former KKK Grand Wizard. And it, it going back to quoting here, and it is a political orientation that has been expressed by the self-styled Christian conservative leader of Hungary, Viktor Orban, and Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran's Islamic theocracy. Khamenei, I think uh, I mispronounced that. The fevered fantasy of Jewish domination is incredibly malleable. Right? It can be changed. It can be used. It's like clay. It can be formed and reformed and reformed again, which makes it incredibly attractive. If Jews are responsible for every perceived problem, then people with entirely opposite ideals can adopt it. And thanks to centuries of material blaming the world's ills on the world's Jews, conspiracy theorists seeking a scapegoat for their sorrows inevitably discover that the invisible hand of their oppressor belongs to the invisible Jew. Now, in a 2015 British newspaper, The Independent published an investigation of anti-Semitic claims against the Rothschilds. This is where I get to eat a little crow, right? Because this was where I, this is the nonsense I had forwarded. Journalism professor Brian Cathcart traced the first widespread conspiracy theory about the Rothschilds to a political pamphlet called, what's well, this big long French name? History et Defante et Curious de Rothschilds Lair. I don't know if I'm saying this right. Uh, anyway, which began rolling off European printing presses in 1846. Written by George uh, Darnvell under the pseudonym Satan. Yeah, his pseudonym for his article was written as Satan. This pamphlet narrates the history of the Rothschild's family and its influence in Europe. According to Cathcart, its most famous passage details Nathan Rothschild's involvement in the Battle of Waterloo on June 18, 1815. And this is where this, this I got wrong and I had put in my video. Immediately after the battle, this is all false, okay? Immediately after the battle, according to the pamphlet, Rothschild was rushed to the Belgian coast and paid a fortune to cross the English Channel in the middle of a thunderstorm. He arrived in London 24 hours before news of Napoleon's defeat was officially announced, Satan claims. And as a result, he suddenly won 20 million francs while his other brothers seconded him. The total profit made in this fatal year amounted to 135 million. Now, this uh, was from the Britannica, the Encyclopedia Britannica website. Although this account became instantly popular across Europe, this pamphlet from Satan with this false information about the Rothschilds, who were a banking industry, they were a banking family, and so they automatically had hate being directed toward them because of the money, right? So much of this has to do with just following the money, as with almost every other conspiracy theory. Um and so they think they're following the money to the Rothschilds, and that's the seat of all evil, right? But here's, I me continue this quote from the Britannica website. Although this account became instantly popular across Europe, it was both false and dangerous. Cathcart's research found that on June 18, 1815, Nathan Rothschild was nowhere near Waterloo. There were no reports of a storm over the English Channel at that time, and while the Rothschilds did profit immensely of, off the war effort against Napoleon, they did not make millions from announcing the Allied victory at Waterloo. The fact that these claims were so readily believed 
draws on the pernicious history of European anti-Semitism. Many respectable institutions have fallen prey to Darnvell's pamphlet. The Encyclopedia Britannica is among them. In volume 23 of the 11th edition, back in 1910, the entry on Rothschilds states that he is said to have been present at the Battle of Waterloo and being able to transmit to London private information of the Allied success several hours before it reached the public, he effected an immense profit by the purchase of stock, which had been depressed on the news of Blucher's defeat two days previously. Having chronicled Darnvell's pamphlet as fact, Britannica's 11th edition helped to perpetuate a conspiracy theory about the Rothschilds. So if you're so in answering your question here Kevin what I'm pointing out is all the way up to the Encyclopedia Britannica they got this crap wrong and this has been propagated and propagated and disseminated and talked about and talked about and talked about. And so all the modern renditions of this are just building on what is quite literally one of the world's oldest conspiracy theories ever. It has been a continuous thing in the concept. This, 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 this thread has ran through history, run through history, of Jews dominating, controlling, uh, killing, uh, maiming, hurting, abusing, destroying, right? And they are always, always made out to be the easy scapegoats, okay? They are not, by the way, by far the only scapegoats that have ever been used in history. We can look to the gypsies. We can look to um, mentally challenged or, uh, you know, uh, people who have physical deformities and issues, right? These people get scapegoated through history as well. But when you're looking, but here looking specifically at anti-Semitism, it is just, it's one of these things that seems to capture the hearts and minds of the ignorant and the imbeciles and the deluded and the predatory, right? All of the that class of people, right, seem to just glom onto this because it is one of the easiest things to understand and it is one of the easiest ways to direct hate and violence toward a group of people where everybody else doesn't really seem to have that big of a problem with it because it's so embedded in so many cultures that the Jews are the bad guys, right? This just perpetuates and goes on and on and on. Um, and as I have pointed out many, many times, one of the problems with conspiracy theories and extremist thinking, right, extremism, once you really commit, you get all emotionally involved in something and you really make it yours and it's part of you and this is defines who I am, right? Once you start identifying with ideas and beliefs, you lose your ability to critically think about those ideas, you just do. You just stop thinking about them. They become mantras and cliches and thought-terminating cliches, right? The thinking's done. The Jews are the bad guys. I don't have to think anymore. All the world's problems can be laid at the feet of the Jews and easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy, now I understand how everything works. And if you're an imbecile or a very, very gullible person or somebody who really just can't think too well— Answers like that make a lot of sense. And unfortunately, the human condition is such that there's a lot of imbeciles out there. You know, and I and I say that from the point of view of not trying to necessarily put out a value statement about you know, mentally challenged or or cognitively challenged people or people who are be of below average intelligence, I am not commenting on their value as human beings. I am commenting on their value as thinkers, as people who can actually navigate the world constructively and, and think about the world correctly and, and factually and rationally. There are people who are just incapable of that. And, and we have to accept the fact that that is the way it is. And there, there is a large chunk of people out there who are of below average intelligence. And the lower you go, the less ability you have to navigate the rationality of the world. And you just glom onto these simple, Simon, nonsensical explanations for things. And people lose their minds over this and their heads explode. How could people think this? When you look at their ability to think through 
logical sequences and consequences and cause and effect and that kind of thing. You're dealing with people who cannot think that way, right? They need simple answers. And, and so these are the kind of simple answers that are offered up on the internet in language that they can understand, right? And that's just how this stuff propagates. And uh, let me read this to you. This is a quote from Walter Russell Mead from Bard's College. He uh, was quoted in one of these articles. Quote, people who think the Jews run the banks lose the ability to understand, much less to operate financial systems. People who think the Jews dominate business through hidden structures can't build or long maintain a successful modern economy. People who think the Jews dominate politics lose their ability to interpret political events, to diagnose social evils, and to organize effectively for positive change. Basically restating what I what I was just what I've been talking about for years about how you lose your ability to critically think. That means you lose your ability basically to think at all, right? And you merely engage in a, a repetitious echo chamber of thought stopping cliches. And that propagated again and again and again is why these conspiracy theories take hold in simple people's minds and why they hold on to them so tightly. Um, I do believe that if you talk about this without constantly putting out caveats that this is false information about the conspiracy, you know, the conspiracy are false. None of this is true. It's never been true, right? Unless you hammer people with these caveats, they will take your claims or, you know, attempts to talk about these things and they'll run with it. So, yes, I do think that even talking about this does have some danger to it in that you have to be crystal clear. Do you know, I mean, just to just to point this out to people, right? Do you guys know who watch my channel? I have been accused of being a pro-Scientology advocate, a Scientology apologist, somebody who is uh, deceptively prom promulgating or, or trying to promote Scientology through my channel which of course is absolutely insane. It's a bonkers idea. It's, it, it's so stupid that it's laughable. And yet there are people out there who have actually thought that. Not a lot of them, but a few. And why would they think that, right? Because they clearly cannot see what's right in front of their face, right? And they have to believe that there's some kind of hidden influencers out there, something they don't know, don't see. It's that fear of the unknown. I was going to do a podcast about that this week, but I just didn't think it was really going to have a whole lot of traction or people would be very interested in it. But I am kind of putting some of that into my answer here, right, about this, is that is that the, the fear of the unknown and the, and the lack of ability to imagine or rationalize or reason out, kind of logic out, what's going on, right? There are people who just can't do that, and they, or they just can't do it very well. And they and so they 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 just grab these simpleton explanations and they run with it. And so that is where basically, you know, in a very reductionist psychological sort of perspective, that's where these conspiracy theories against the Jews come from and why they exist in the first place. Um, and I hope that that gives some kind of you know, further information or view on this. Uh, but if, you know, if you want to know more about this or, or if this doesn't seem satisfactory to you as an answer, Kevin, just let me know. And there you go. Edward Collier. You mentioned in one of the other Q&A shows that LRH had tried out a bunch of wacky ideas that were important in Scientology in the early years, but were jettisoned as they proved unworkable or unpopular. I would love to hear more about rejected Scientology ideas. Could you give some examples? I feel like knowing what was left on the cutting room floor can say a lot about the intentions behind what remains, if you catch my drift. And Steve Wood. You said in a recent podcast that as time went by, Hubbard made further discoveries, and that made me think, did he ever elaborate on how discoveries were made? Or, which I suspect will be your answer, he just said it, therefore it was. Also, you go on to say in 1980, Hubbard announced that all of this was true in this story from History of Man. No further elaboration, or was that it? 
All right, guys, I put these two answers together. I figured they were kind of close to one another and I uh, could sort of speak to this. Um, first off, um, Steve, I will say that, um, yeah, Hubbard's discoveries, quote unquote, and his research uh, were a joke and they were a joke from day one. Hubbard did not know anything about how to do actual scientific research and his incredibly best effort at it was when he wrote Dianetics, the original thesis, and tried to include case studies, which were really just these little one-page summaries of cases he had supposedly worked while he was down in Savannah, Georgia, back in 1948-49, when he was, quote-unquote, researching Dianetics. And I keep using air quotes and talking about this in this way because, you know, it's sort of dripping with contempt. Because that uh, you, Hubbard's methodology, as far as research goes, was to sit down at a typewriter, imagine things that were true, and then write them down and claim they were. That was Hubbard's research method. I'm telling you, just straight up. And later on, after he got hold of an e-meter, his research method involved putting a whole lot of drugs into his son, his fiance, himself, and putting themselves on e-meters and imagining all kinds of nonsensical whole track space opera incidents having happened to them. And that was what he called research. Seriously. It's so outrageous. It's so boldly, insanely dumb that you can't believe somebody could actually seriously say or call something like that research. But Hubbard really did, and he had a straight face, and he would get really, really pissed at you if you told him otherwise. If you said, that's not research, what are you talking about? Where's Where are your notes? Where's the research? Where are the case studies? Where are the results? Where's the testing before and after? All of those were efforts that they nominally sort of made in 1950, but there was no meat to the to the to the meal, right? And um, and there there's just nothing there. So that's the that's the truth of the matter when it comes to Scientology research. So when you ask me then, uh, Edward, about, you know, rejected Scientology ideas and maybe they might give some insight, not a whole lot, but a little bit, okay? And, and I'll give you two examples of stuff that was talked about in the 1950s that Hubbard really went on a tear about and then dropped. And the first one was exteriorization. Now, exteriorization is still talked about in Scientology. It's still a goal. It's still something that even... There's a level, L12, I think it is, L11 or L12, uh, where the end result of that level or achieving of doing that auditing is supposed to be that you are stably exterior. You're stably outside of your body. You're having exteriorization is the process of taking a thetan, a spirit, and putting them, taking them out of the body. So they could see or hear or sense or otherwise perceive the world around them without having to look or see or perceive through the five, you know, channels of the body. Actually, the 72 Hubbard, Hubbard lists out a whole bunch of perceptics that bodies have besides sight, taste, smell, you know, all of that. Um, Anyway, so exteriorization was a really, really, really big deal in the early 1950s. It was what he basically founded a lot of Scientology on, and he spent most of 1953 and 1954 talking about it um, a lot. They had exteriorization processes, like be three feet back of your head. That was a one-line command that was supposed to pop you out of your head. And if that didn't work, the next command was try not to be three feet back of your head. Oh, wow, you know, and boing, there you are outside of your head, right? It's all imagination. It's guided imagination. And this is why one of the reasons I believe John Atack describes hypnotism as guided imagination. Right? You're just getting people to imagine things and then, and then telling them or interpreting those experiences as though they're factual and real and true. Right? Anybody can imagine anything. You can imagine what it might look like if you were in the corner of the room looking down on yourself. It's easy to imagine if you have you know, a kind of visual-oriented imagination. Or you could imagine what people are saying in the other room. You could hear them, right? 
Uh, or you could imagine what, you know, a wall feels like 50 miles away in a room you can't see, but you could send yourself there as a spirit and feel the wall, right, and report back on it. And it feels real to you if you think that your imagination is real. And Scientology encourages that. Hubbard even wrote it into the book Science of Survival, the second book on Dianetics. He talks about how imaginary incidents are something you can use to kind of kickstart a person into getting into the real stuff, quote unquote. Well, how are you supposed to differentiate? You can't. Because the fact of the matter is there is no differentiation. But Hubbard actually even had this as a process of, of, uh, of jump-starting a person's ability to exteriorize or find past incidents from millions of years ago, right? Well, just imagine it, and then we'll sort of go from there. Because the idea in Scientology, as Hubbard said in one of his lectures, is that, you know, there really isn't much to imagination. You're just remembering stuff that happened to you way back. Right, and that is your imagination. Is it? So it was all real. It was all real, right? And then, of course, you get to the very, 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 very top of the bridge to OT eight, and what's the word? Ah, you made it all up. Ah, psych. Right. So it's a little bit of fun with that. Anyway, exteriorization was to get back to answering your question here, Edward. Exteriorization was a real big thing, and Hubbard was all over that for a couple of years. And then it really didn't pan out, right? And why did it didn't pan out? Well, because not everybody could exteriorize. Not everybody could do this imagination thing and be convinced as a result of that that Scientology works or that Scientology is a thing, right? There's a certain percentage of people who will respond to that. But Hubbard wanted more than that percentage of people to get involved in Scientology because at the end of the day, it's kind of a small percent of people. Right? Not everybody's walking around in a delusional hypnotic fog. Hubbard thought most people were. Eh, not really. Not, not as much as he would like to hope they did or were. So he could get some people in on this. And he could give them these amazing experiences that they thought were amazing. And, you know, off they would go. And, and uh, yeah, Scientology, it's the, it's the bomb, right? Uh, other people come in. You know, be, get told be three feet back of your head, and they're like, "What? What are you? What are you talking about?" So it didn't really pan out that well. This whole exteriorization thing, and it wasn't really the solid, uh, you know, proof that Hubbard wanted people to have, and they and they and they weren't when well, they weren't having that. So he had to come up with other ideas, and you know, one of the other ideas he came up with shortly after that was he started this whole framing of Scientology around game processing and games and this theory that life is a game and life is a game that has freedoms, barriers, and purposes or goals. And these, this is the sort of anatomy of life. And he sat down one day with a sheet of paper and kind of wrote down a bunch of things that he thought would kind of fit into this kind of model of, of looking at life and the pursuit of happiness and goals and, and freedoms and barriers. And there can be too many freedoms and there can be too many barriers. And, and it was a legit way of analyzing problems people run into maybe or a way of looking at how we approach life. But it's really a pretty loosey-goosey framework. I mean, freedoms, barriers, and purposes. I mean, it's really not very explanatory for all of life and everything that's going on. Uh, but Hubbard was always about, remember, putting people or having people think that they were in the driver's seat, that life is under your control. And this all came from Hubbard's desperate need to feel in control of his own life, which he very much was not. Uh, especially pre-Scientology, Hubbard's life was a random series of, of you know, nonsensical occurrences, and his ability to make things go right was very, very poor. He was not a guy who was making things go right. He was he was making them go very, very wrong. You know, the, the broken marriages, broken fam broken homes, uh, broken relationships, a a a crap war record, uh, you know, physical disabilities, and not being able to dominate the hearts and minds of others plagued Hubbard's conscience, right? He thought this was, you know, his his mission and his goal and his efforts to, you know, dominate people. That was his whole life, and he was failing 
And then along comes this bright idea of Dianetics, and and uh, man, that changed everything. And, and that rolled into Scientology. So this idea of freedom barriers and purposes and life is a game, that, that kind of dominated Scientology for about a year. I think it was 56 or so uh, when that was going on. And now you don't hear anything really about that. It's more just sort of past stuff. There's a Congress. There's a set of lectures about it. There's a book, Fundamentals of Thought, where Hubbard kind of talks about this. But it's not really used much in Scientology except as the basis for a few auditing processes that are still run on the Scientology grades. Otherwise, you don't really hear much about life as a game and all that kind of stuff. So those are two examples I can give you just off the top of my head of pretty important things at the time in Scientology's history, which later just kind of really didn't get a whole lot of attention and uh, were kind of given short shrift. So I hope those, uh, hope those answers are satisfying, and uh, there you go. Jonathan Perry. Do you think in a few decades that Scientologists will start to question why there hasn't been any reincarnations, even with partial memories that could be proven? Perhaps they could just lie about it and say, oh yeah, there were examples, but we're not allowed to share them since their cases are confidential. I feel like it's been around long enough that people should be starting to show up. I'm assuming there's a protocol to answer this when someone asks this question. Okay, Jonathan, um, I need to actually, that the whole framing of your question's off. And I'm going to answer this question by trying to correct that framing, okay? Because here's where you lose it. Here's where you're just totally looking at this the wrong way. And that is when you ask, why hasn't there been any reincarnations even with partial memories that could be proven? That could be proven is the key thing there that I'm gonna that I'm that I'm that I'm bringing up right because in the world of Scientology the mere fact that somebody can claim a memory of something is all the proof anyone in Scientology will ever ask for they don't need any more proof than a person saying this happened I was a past life Scientologist when I was in Scientology I believed that and I told people that, and it was in my auditing sessions. And no one ever, it never even occurred to anyone to ask me for proof. That, that is not how Scientologists think at all. They don't need proof. You saying you remember yourself as a Scientologist in a past life, that's it. It's done. We're finished. The thinking is over. That's kind of what it means to be in a cult, and that's kind of why I keep harping on this point that when you accept an extremist belief set and you, and you go in for it and you're all in, that's the end of thinking. There is no more thinking. There is defending. There is fighting. There is, there is debating. There is uh, other people. Right? There's pushing back against other people who don't accept things as uncritically as you do. They're the ones who are wrong. They're the ones who don't understand. Proof? I don't need proof. He said it. He, he experienced it. What more proof do you want? Yeah, I'm supposed to go, what am I supposed to do? Go dig up his grave? Go, go look up his records from his past life? Right. And and just below that, and this is why I want to talk about this, because I thought you might get something, I, I thought you might find this interesting. Just below that, you know, sort of I, you know, this is how it is, right? I don't have to, you know, this is all the proof I need, is this idea that that people's memories are not really the, the selling point on this, right? It's merely the idea that we're going to live forever, that we're going to keep going, that we're going to, that, that this life has, has no end. Um, the idea that we can grow and improve and become super beings, gods, really, that's the thing that the people in Scientology are holding on to so tightly, that there is a better mode of existence, you could say. And Scientologists interpret this in lots of different ways, but, they but the common point is we need to go OT. We need to be an operating Thetan, which means at cause over matter, energy, space, time, life, and form. 
That's OT. However you want to think about what that means for you, that's a pretty big state of existence. It's way, way, way above homo, homo sapiens, right? Being a, being a person stuck in a body on a planet where you only got this little tiny lifespan and nobody really listens to you and nobody really pays attention to you. Nobody really likes you. And you got to struggle and, and, and do this, do that, do all this other crap. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could have this life that is different from that and that we were in charge and we were in control and we had the power not just to dominate other people. And Scientologists are not all like L. Ron Hubbard that way. Uh, but having ultimate power and control, that is the common point that Scientologists meet on. And so they don't want to question or find proof of past lives not really a big deal for them, right? Because they got this faith-based idea that they are going to become a god. And that's the driving thing. And so if you start entering the idea of proving things and having to go dig up records and stuff and finding, you know, proof and evidence, well, that threatens that faith-based idea, right? Because what if you find something contradictory? What if you find something, ooh, no, that's not right. Ooh, that you mean there was no Joe Smith living in England in 1956 like I remember I did and where I was and how I was and all of that? And this is why Hubbard discouraged even talking about what goes on in your auditing sessions or your past life memories. I mean, he was like, yeah, don't be talking about this stuff. Don't get into it. And he gave reasons that within the Scientology context made a lot of sense to people, right? It's restimulative. People have, you know, sometimes people have false past life memories. And if you go invalidating them, then you're going to invalidate the true ones they have too. See, there's no claim in Scientology that just because you remember something, it's absolutely positively true. No one in Scientology has ever said that. Hubbard never said that. In fact, he said quite the opposite a number of times, right? Even encouraging imaginary incidents to be run. So it's not the fact that just because you remember it, it absolutely positively is true. But remember, this is where one of those, that, those little uh, thought-stopping cliches comes up again. If it's true for you, it's true. See, that idea solidifies the past life memories, right? Well, it's true for me. So who are you to tell me different? You weren't there. You don't know. You see, maybe the history books are wrong. Maybe the gravestone was wrong. Maybe the records are wrong, but my memory is the right thing. I mean, you know, Scientologists could approach this from lots and lots of different angles, but the bottom line is they just don't really care to get involved in proving things because that's not what they're there for. And that's not what Scientology is about. At the end of the day, that's really the answer to the question is because it's not why they're there and it's not what Scientology is about. You know, it's not about proving things. And so um, so if in terms of protocol, well, the protocol you ask about here is, you know, if somebody's, you know, bringing this stuff up or talking about this is uh, to be shown a bulletin called... Um, Oh, what is that thing called? I think it was called just, it's got a weird title. I can't remember what it was called. But in the bulletin is where it talks about how you don't talk about past life memories, okay? And you don't talk to other people about that stuff because it will re-stimulate them. People can get into arguments. And Hubbard even makes the point in that bulletin that, um, uh, I think it's called past life remedies or something like that. I Actually, I'm just having a total blank on the name of that bulletin. But the other thing he says in that bulletin is that also people have used past life memories uh, for ad sexual advantage too, right? Oh, I think we knew each other in a past life. We must be, you know, theta buddies or soulmates or this kind of stuff, right? People will use this in Scientology to, uh, to hook up. I've seen it. So, uh, so that happens too, right? And Hubbard was uh, realized that could 
that could get people in trouble real fast. So anyway, these are the reasons why people in Scientology don't talk about this or even think about it that way. And that's kind of what I was trying to get across, Jonathan, is, is that it's, that it's that people in Scientology are not thinking that way. So the demand for proof or evidence or anything like that is really falling on deaf ears when you're in, in that group. And um, that's what I can say about that. I hope it makes sense. Sally Wong. It seems clear that people don't much talk about their subjective experiences in getting auditing. Why is that? It makes the subject such a mystery. Like, how come there's not a book that releases data on what goes on in sessions and the grades processes for people in a comprehensive manner to show that it's either good or bad in itself? It seems that a lot of critics take the easy way out of criticizing things people have said and done, but like the whole pitch is that the tech is supposed to be workable towards increasing sanity and intelligence and spiritual awareness. And there are plenty of raving Scientologists you see on those testimonial videos. The whole thing is confusing, like if auditing was complete garbage, then why wouldn't anyone at this stage release data about its awful qualities as opposed to silence? The lack of data seems to hint that it could be helpful for a lot of people. And why would so many people pay the cost of the bridge so many times if it was unhelpful and pointless? What an interesting set of questions, Sally. And I have to sort of take you to task right off when you say something like, the lack of data seems to hint that it could be helpful for a lot of people. No, it doesn't. That is a completely unwarranted assumption and is factually a little ridiculous. However... You do make an excellent point that not enough has been written or said about the actual auditing processes and what they are doing to you. And this is an area where uh, there has not been nearly enough research or, um, uh, you know, academic review. Okay, and I actually wrote that into my master's thesis when I wrote that a few months ago when I did an analysis of Scientology auditing and specifically Scientology confessionals from an academic point of view. So I wanted to share with you just a couple things that came out of my research on this that I thought you might find interesting. And um, one of the things that you will find in Scientology auditing. Now, actually, before I get into my thesis on this, and I cannot in this short format, give you everything in my thesis, okay? It's, a, it's long, it's involved, there's a lot of research here. But I will point you to John Atak's work, because if you look at A Piece of Blue Sky, which is a book that he wrote, or you look at a paper he wrote called Never Trust a Hypnotist, John Atak did break down what's wrong with Scientology auditing in a lot of different ways, and, the, and especially in the Never Trust a Hypnotist paper, he quotes from Hubbard extensively on the subject of hypnotism and what it is and how Hubbard's using it in Scientology auditing in a backhanded, deceitful, you know, rather nefarious way. So you do have that. It's not that nothing's ever been said or written about the harms or destructive nature of Scientology auditing, but you got to look around and dig for it a little bit. It's not really out there too much. And this is something I'm working on trying to remedy, both starting with this answer, uh, videos I've made. I mean, I have talked about Scientology auditing in depth. And so uh, for you to claim, well, there's really nothing out there, yeah, there is, and you're on the right channel to find it. You just got to watch and look and, and, and dig around and, and find the stuff. It's there. But let's be really openly blatant here and go right into what I found in my research, or at least some of the things I found. In analyzing L. Ron Hubbard's lectures and his descriptions of Scientology auditing and what Scientology auditing's framework actually is. So let's talk about this for a little bit. There were two themes that came up over and over and over again when I was researching Hubbard's lectures and his descriptions of Scientology auditing. And those themes were doctrine over person and sacred science. Now, if you are at all familiar, and I hope at this point that most of my viewers are, with a man named Robert J. Lifton, he wrote a book about the psychology of totalism and thought reform. 
And uh, this was written based on studies he did of prisoners of war and people who had survived and gotten out of Chinese re-education camps after the Maoist uh, communist revolution. And there was a lot of what we call brainwashing or thought reform going on during that time. The Chinese were sort of making a little bit of a science out of it. North Koreans have engaged in this as well. And, you know, I have to say, unfortunately, so has pretty much every major government on this planet in one degree or another. Uh, controlling people and engaging in thought reform techniques is what Guantanamo Bay is all about uh, for information extraction, that kind of thing. And it's pretty, it's pretty seedy, pretty, na you know, nasty stuff. Okay. And there isn't really too, there aren't too many governments that, that are innocent when it comes to that. But that's not where I'm trying to go with any of this. I'm just pointing out that it wasn't just China and North Korea that, that have been bad guys on this. Thought reform is something that a lot of governments are interested in. Um, as part of the breakdown of what is thought reform, what is brainwashing? What are you doing? to somebody when you're brainwashing them. Well, you're introducing, you're putting them into an environment that they don't control, and you're introducing thoughts and ideas into their head that they really don't have a whole lot of power of choice over whether they want to accept it or not. And through physical and psychological means, you can um, wear down a person's resistance to accepting ideas, and you can enforce ideas on people, and they will accept them. And, and depending on how much brute force you have to use and how much conditioning you have to use on the person in order to get them to accept it is a bit of a predictor as to how long that conditioning is going to last. Uh, generally speaking, it wears off, right? You, get to, you, you put a person in a coercive environment and you keep feeding them this nonsense, you're brainwashing them. And as long as you're controlling them, they'll say and do whatever you want. Right, but you re you remove them from that environment, and they start that conditioning starts wearing off unless you keep hitting them with it. You keep the messages going. You keep the reinforcement of the indoctrination going. And this is one of the reasons why, for example, in Scientology, they have to have these continuous events all the time where Miscavige trots out on stage and reinforces the indoctrination. Right? And if you didn't have that going on and this constant sort of repetition of this, then the conditioning might wear off. The events are one example, but Scientology auditing sessions are another place where that conditioning and reinforcement continues and, and goes on. And so people who get lots and lots and lots of auditing go further and further and further down this sort of thought reform rabbit hole, and they find it harder and harder and harder to climb their way out of it, you know, once they start seeing what they're involved in. So one of the, so two of the elements of thought reform are doctrine over person and sacred science. These are two of the things that Lifton talks about. Doctrine over person being, um, well, these are themes that come up throughout Hubbard's lectures. And why don't I just read you a little bit of what I wrote in my thesis, and, and maybe this will help clarify it. Maybe it'll be as clear as mud. I don't know. I'm writing academically here. But there are two themes which were found to be present throughout all the lectures. And I analyzed five of L. Ron Hubbard's lectures about doing Scientology confessionals or sec checks. Um, so there were th two themes which are found to be present throughout all the lectures. Uh, so these will be discussed first. The doctrine over person and sacred science, two components of Lifton's model of thought reform. The point of commonality with these is the E-meter, which is the primary tool that enables the Scientology auditor to engage in coercive control with a willing preclear. Hubbard was crystal clear and repetitive throughout these lectures that the E-meter is infallible. And if it is reacting to a question that the security checker asks, that means without exception, there is an unspoken moral transgression the preclear is not willing to divulge. The job of the security checker is to repeat the question or variations of it, basically badgering the person until they confess to a crime. Now, if that doesn't do it for you yet, let's get into this a little bit. <clears throat> Sacred science. The lore and rules in Scientology concerning the E-meter and its use constitute sacred science, as described by Lifton. 
The totalism milieu maintains an aura of sacredness around its basic dogma, holding it out as an ultimate moral vision for the ordering of human existence. This sacredness is evident in the prohibition, whether or not explicit, against the questioning of basic assumptions. While thus transcending ordinary concerns of logic, however, the milieu at the same time makes an exaggerated claim of airtight logic of absolute scientific precision. Okay, now that's a direct quote from Robert J. Lifton's work. And what he's basically saying here is that sacred science is, is the kind of knowledge in a group that is unquestioning. You, you must not question it. It cannot be questioned. It is sacred. And these are the rules. These are the methods. These are the guidelines we're going to follow. And it is not up to you to question them. It is up to you to follow them. And to the degree you do, they will work. And if you alter them or mess around with them or don't do them right, then it won't work. This is the claim that's made about Scientology auditing. Throughout the lectures... This I'll read to you from uh, what I wrote here. Throughout the lectures, Hubbard presents the E-meter as an infallible device which always registers the truth of the preclear's emotion, emotional or spiritual state. This is not to be considered to be merely a theory in Scientology, but is claimed to be a hard scientific fact. Um, okay, so that is one problem with Scientology auditing, is that the E-meter is infallible, which means... If you disagree with what the e-meter is saying, you're the one who's wrong, never the e-meter. And this is used, as I wrote, to badger pre-clears into confessing to crimes that they didn't ever commit and never, ever happened. Just total fantasies. But the person has to comply. They have to come up with an answer to the question because the e-meter demands it and the auditor therefore demands it. And the auditor is set up in an auditing room, by the way. Now let's talk about framework here. The auditor is set up in an auditing room where the door is behind him or her. The preclear is sitting up in front of the auditor on the other side of the desk. If that preclear wants to leave the room for any reason, whether it's to go to the bathroom, get something to eat, they don't like what's happening in the auditing session, they're uncomfortable, they're offended, they are, in, in other words, for whatever reason, they want to go out. They can't at all until the auditor lets them out. And the auditor is specifically trained in Scientology training routines to keep the, pre the preclear prisoner until the auditor is the one who deems that they can leave the room. And there are auditing sessions that have gone on for 8, 12, 16 hours, not just a couple times, all throughout Scientology's history. That preclear was forced to stay in the auditing room despite wanting to leave, saying very loudly and clearly that they want to leave. The auditor's trained to literally manhandle the preclear and put him back in the chair and make him hold the cans and answer the question. And you ain't leaving that room until you do. That's not therapy. That is a police interrogation. That's not counseling. That is the third degree, right? And that is what goes on in auditing sessions. So that is the most, that, and, and that's just part of what's going on, <laughs> right? But this is what my research showed, is that it's built into the DNA of how Hubbard describes auditing and its framework that you, you cannot escape these elements, right? The e-meter, the auditor is training, the coercive elements of an auditing session are undeniable and present in every single session. Um, it's just how it is, right? And so uh, this is a coercively controlling environment. And it's not counseling and it's not therapy. And it's really a pretty, pretty wild misnomer to use the word counseling or therapy to describe this process. Because you would never think of a police interrogation as something that is supposed to benefit the person who is being interrogated, right? I mean, they're there as part of an investigation. They're an interested, uh, what's the word, um, you know, suspect, right? They're, they're a person who, a person of interest. So, you, you know, you don't want to be in that seat. You don't want that happening to you. That's not therapeutic. That's not, that's not counseling. 
right? It's it's pretty abusive, to be honest, right? This is called, the, and what they use in, in police interrogations these days is called the Reed technique. And it was, uh, and we can go into a whole thing about that, but I've, I've already talked about that in my channel before. So uh, anyway, so there's, there's a whole sort of coercive environment that is created in every single auditing session that ever happens. And, and this is why auditing, this is just one of the reasons why auditing is really bad for you. Not to mention the, the false memory syndrome that occurs, you know, the, the, the whole hypnotic problem here with trance induction. Because some auditing, a lot of auditing, is repetitive. It's the same question asked over and over and over and over and over again. That puts you into a hypnotic trance. And uh, that's not necessarily a good place to go because in an auditing session, it's not referred to or thought about or framed as a hypnotic trance with the problem of pre- and post-hypnotic suggestion. See, that's not part of the auditing thinking or the framing. They don't talk about any of that in Scientology. They talk about how you go into a trance state, and it's not even, they don't even use the word trance. They call it aniton attenuated, um, what is it, uh, analytical attenuation, aniton. And this word is used by Hubbard to describe the fact that your case is, is brewing up, all these memories and trauma are brewing up from your past lives and causing you to engage in what they call boil-off or dope-off. And you start getting a little in the middle of the session. You start going unconscious even. I've seen people fall asleep, go unconscious, go into these weird states. And it becomes a bit of an altered reality. And you're interpreting all of this the way you're told to in a session that it's on you, that you're the one doing this to yourself, that it's your case doing this to you, your reactive mind doing this to you, not the auditor and the framework of the auditing session. So, you know, so there's misinterpretations of phenomena. There are, you know, again, false memories being implanted from past life stuff and on and on and on. Okay. These are just, and, and I'm really only kind of hitting the tip of the iceberg with these framework points and these coercive control points. It goes deeper than this if we really wanted to go all the way down the rabbit hole. Um, but um, that's what you get. Okay. And uh, I hope this gives a little bit of a hint of why Scientology auditing is bad. And as far as, um, you know, this not being discussed or talked about amongst the critics and whatnot, well, it's mostly because most of the, most of the people coming out of Scientology and being Scientology critics don't have formal educations in, you know, psychological mechanisms of coercive control. I mean, who, you know, you got to go study that stuff and, and read and research and read Lifton and read all these dense books that explain all this stuff in really dry academic terms. It's not easy stuff to, to break down and understand. I do my best here to try to interpret this stuff and communicate about it in a way that you guys can understand. But you dive into these books, they're not not understandable, but it's a lot of work. And most people are recovering from their Scientology experience or their ex-cult experience they don't have the time or resources or attention to get into all that or want to get into all of it. You know, it's kind of niche stuff. So that's why you don't see a whole lot of ex-cult members diving into the academic literature or trying to do academic research on this and why you don't see a lot of papers on it. For the most part, also, to address this point, Sally, um, a lot of the uh, Scientology academic criticism is not written by psychologists, it's written by sociologists. And they're not necessarily psychologically trained, so they don't dive into the meat and potatoes of what is going on in an auditing session to a person's head. Right. This is there's just been there haven't been a lot of research psychologists who have really gotten that interested in Scientology specifically and what that auditing is doing. I mean, let's let's be real in the big wide world. Scientology is a tiny, tiny little group of people. I mean, a few thousand, a couple, ten thousand people. So. It's not like research on this is going to pay huge dividends to people who have never been involved with Scientology before. There's not a lot of non-Scientology researchers who are super interested in Scientology. There are a couple. Stephen Kent, Hugh Urban are a couple of, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, 
very interesting and interested uh, academics who have done a lot of writing and, and research on Scientology, but they're not their specialties are not the psychology of coercive control or the psychology of what's going on in the auditing session. They're researching it more from a sociological perspective. And that's why you'll find papers and research written. Susan Rain is another great author, academic researcher who's written about Scientology, but it's been more from the group social psychology perspective than the individual psychology of what goes on in the auditing session, which is why I lamented in my my paper when I wrote my master's thesis, I went, yeah, there's just not a lot of research on this. There really isn't. And it and there needs to be a lot more research on it. And so that's what my my master's work was about. And hopefully what other people coming up the line will start diving into Scientology and figuring this stuff out too. I shouldn't, I, you know, I'm I'm I don't want to be the only person doing this. So anyway, there's my answer to your question, Sally. I know I started out being a little critical because, um, you know, your question seems to imply that, you know, Scientology auditing hasn't been researched and therefore maybe there's something good about it. And really that kind of hints that there is. And I'm like, no, that doesn't hint at that at all. That is that is very much not the case. But it's very, very true that this could use a lot more academic attention. And, uh, and I hope to help make that happen. Literally, I hope to personally help make that happen uh, through my work uh, into the future here. So uh, there you go. Hope that answered the question somewhat and gives you some more information about why Scientology auditing is so bad. And uh, yeah. All right. So that is our show for this week, guys. Thanks for coming around. Like I said, kind of tough questions. I hope my answers were somewhat satisfactory there. I tried to go in some, some detail on all of that. Uh, thanks again for coming around. And as always, if you find the channel and my show interesting, informative, and educational, please help support the channel through Patreon, PayPal, or Venmo. There are links below to all of those in the description to this video and every video I've ever made, you can find those links so you can help show, throw me some love, help me get a cup of coffee, whatever, you know, even a dollar a month on Patreon definitely helps, right? All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.